If you'll open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament and chapter number 24, I want to talk to you tonight about how Jesus cares for our hopelessness. When we have those seasons in life, when we feel hopeless, all hope is gone. I want us to see tonight how Jesus cares for our hopelessness. You know, there, there's nothing worse than, than losing hope and not, not being able to look into the future and, and see anything good. I heard about a man who was on a cruise, and way out there at sea, the waves got bad and there was a terrible storm, and he got seasick. And if you've ever been on a cruise, you know that there are few things in life worse than getting seasick a long way from land. In fact, I think many people have made all kinds of promises to God in a setting like that. God, if you'll get me back to land, I'll do anything for you. Well, this man was sick. I mean sick one night when, uh, during this storm, and the captain of the ship came by and saw him up on deck, and, and he said, sir, I'm so, so sorry that you're sick. He said, I've been a captain for a long time. And I've seen many people get sick, seasick. And he said, I want you to know, I've never seen anybody die of seasickness. And that man looked up and said, Captain, don't tell me that. Dying was the only hope I had left. And now you've taken that away from me. Well, you know, I think a lot of people feel like whatever hope they had uh, has been taken away. And they just don't have any hope. So I want us to begin tonight by defining what I mean by hope. What is hope? Well, here it is. Hope is a desire accompanied by expectation. That's what hope is. It is a desire. You go to a restaurant, and you have a desire for a good meal, but you believe you're going to get a good meal, so that is hope. You come to church, and you, you have a desire to be in the house of God, to be around your friends, and to sing songs to God, and to study His Word. You, you have a desire for that, and you're expecting it to be a good experience. You're expecting to get some word from God that you can take with you when you go. So that's, when I say hope, that's what I'm talking about. It is a desire accompanied by an expectation. Now, what is hopelessness? Well, hopelessness is just the opposite of that. Watch this. Hopelessness is when we lose the expectation, but we still have the desire. Hopelessness says, I have a desire to have a good meal at this restaurant. I have that desire, but I don't expect it because I've been there before and it wasn't any good last time. It probably won't be any good. So you go to the restaurant, but you have the desire, but you've lost the expectation. I think that's where a lot of people are in life. They have a desire. For whatever it is, in their, life, in their heart, they have a desire, and they believe that desire is from God. They have stood on Psalm 37, 4 for many years, that if we'll delight ourselves in the Lord, He'll give us the desires of, of our hearts. And so they have this desire, and yet the desire has been unmet and unfulfilled for so long that now they have lost the expectation. The desire is there, but they no longer expect that desire to be met, that prayer to be answered, that problem to be solved, the expectation is gone, and that is hopelessness. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 12 tells us the seriousness of hopelessness. Notice what it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, when a person loses hope, it's deferred, it's gone, it's lost, your heart gets sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. In other words, when that desire is fulfilled, when that need is met, then it is a sweet thing. But hope, uh, when it is lost, makes the heart sick. Now, in Luke chapter 24, we read about two men who had lost hope. 
These two men were followers of Jesus. They were not in the 12 disciples. They were not that close to Jesus, but they nonetheless were believers in Him. They were more what we might call distant followers. And they had been in Jerusalem on the weekend when Jesus was crucified, and they had seen that, and they knew He had been buried, and they were hoping that He was going to be raised from the dead on the third day. He had made that promise. They were evidently aware of that promise. And here in Luke chapter 24, it is the third day. It is Easter Sunday night. And they're going back to their home because they have lost hope. Now, I want us to begin in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. And I want us just to read down through verse 27. Instead of me chopping this passage up and breaking it, it's a narrative. And I want you just to hear it read as a story. Here's what we read. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, and they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21, But we were hoping... Now, this is the core of their problem. They've lost hope. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain of our women of of our company who arrived at the tomb astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken." Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets. Now, when it says Moses, it's talking about the first five books of the Bible. Because that's the books Moses wrote. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them or explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so here these two hopeless men on Easter late afternoon, early evening. They're going back to Emmaus, the place where they lived, and they're talking amongst themselves, and they're saying, well, we thought Jesus was the promised Messiah. We understood him to have said that he was going to be killed in Jerusalem, and three days later he would rise again, but here it is the third day, and even though the tomb is empty and some of the angels are supposedly saying he's alive, we haven't seen him, and so we have lost all hope. And so Jesus showed up in that moment, and we see that Jesus began to give them hope. Now, let's just read the rest of the story, beginning in verse 28. Then it won't be chopped up at all. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. 
Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Verse 31, then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. I remember one year we were in Israel, and we were near that Emmaus Road, and we were with our guide, and our guide was pointing at, was referencing this passage of Scripture and how when they sat down to have this meal, again, look in verse 30, it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And the guide said the reason they recognized that this was Jesus, when he gave them the bread, they could see the nail prints in his hands. And I think he's right on that because the next verse says, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? So they rose that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them or recognized by them in the breaking of bread. When he stretched out his hands, they saw those nail marks. They knew that it was Jesus. Now I want you to notice, look, go back and look at the very end of verse 18. At the end of, the verse, of verse 18, we see a question mark. And that's where these men were when Jesus walked up. They were asking questions. And in verse 21, we read that they were, also, they were hopeless, but we were hoping. So they're asking questions. They've lost hope. They're down. They're discouraged. And they are depressed. And now look at the very end of verse 34. Notice the punctuation mark here is not, an exclama- is not a question mark, but instead it is an exclamation point. And so after they had this experience with Jesus, this encounter with Christ, this conversation with him, their question mark was straightened out, and now it's an exclamation point. And now they're excited, and they're enthusiastic, and they're going back to Jerusalem, into the upper room, telling the disciples, Jesus really is alive, and we have seen him on the Emmaus Road. Now, I would imagine tonight there's some here and others listening, wherever you might be tonight, and right now at this time in your life, you are one big question mark. And you're trying to figure out why whatever has happened to you has happened. And you're trying to figure out what are the ramifications? How long will it last? What does this mean for my future? Where is God? If he loved me, why would he have allowed this? Question, 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 question. And what God wants to do tonight is to straighten out those question marks and turn them into exclamation points where you stand tall and straight and you can say, I may not have all the answers to my questions, but I know now that God is with me and God is in control and everything is going to be all right. Now, this whole idea about being hopeless, being down, being depressed is a real deal. I was reading today about a poll that was done at Harvard University about uh, hopelessness, depression in young people. Listen to the study. 51% of young adults ages 18 through 29, in the study they did, 51% in this age group say they feel down, depressed, or hopeless. 68% of them, this is, did I say, 18 through 29. They say they have little energy. 
Little energy. I mean, that's the time in life when you're supposed to have the most energy. They say they have little energy. 59% have trouble sleeping. 52% have little pleasure in doing things. They don't really enjoy anything they do. 49% either have a poor appetite or they overeat to help them with their depression. 48% have trouble concentrating. 32% say, or it is said of 32% of them that they move so slowly that it is noticeable to others that they're not walking at the normal pace. 28% have even had thoughts of hurting themselves or harming themselves. And so here are young adults in the prime of life with most of those having very few what we would call real-world responsibilities, at least the younger part of that group does it, not yet, not most of them, and yet 51% say that they're down, depressed, or hopeless. And so tonight, what I want us to do as we reflect on the passage we read in Luke 24 is to answer this question, how is hope restored? When we are hopeless, that is, when we have lost the expectation that something good is going to happen, but we still want it to. The desire is still there. How do we get our hope back in a time like that? Let me mention some things tonight. Number one, through an encounter with Jesus. Jesus, I want to say this at the beginning of answering this question tonight, Jesus is the cure for hopelessness. Now, the thing that had caused these men to lose hope was they just assumed Jesus was still dead. They assumed that his body had been stolen. And so, He actually had conquered what had taken away their hope. The hope was gone because of his death, and yet he had conquered death. So he shows up, and they begin to have this encounter. Friend, let me say to you tonight, the thing that has caused you to lose hope, whether it's a bad report from the doctor, whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's financial pressure, or whatever it might be, or even if it's just an emotional you're emotionally off and you're just down, Jesus Christ already has conquered whatever it is that is troubling you. He already has conquered whatever it is that has sapped and zapped the hope out of your life. And so the first thing we need when we are hopeless is to have a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ. Let's develop that. The number two thing we need, or the second thing we need, if we want to get our hope restored, is to have a conversation with Jesus Christ. Now, that's what happened to these disciples. They're on the Emmaus Road, and Jesus comes up, and at that time, they didn't recognize that it was Jesus. He was, God had not revealed that yet, and so he begins to talk to them, and he begins to ask them a question. And then they begin to pour out their heart to him. Now, when we think about having a conversation with Jesus, remember two things. First of all, conversations involve talking. You can't have a conversation with somebody who won't talk. We probably all tried to do that, and that's not an easy thing to do. They just look at you, and there's no conversation. In order to have a conversation, you first have to talk, and that's what the disciples did. They were very honest with Jesus. They poured out their heart to him, and they said, we were hoping that... He was the one who was going to redeem Israel. When I was thinking today about having a talk with Jesus, my mind went back to an old song. Some of you remember this song from your your childhood or from another season in life. And I remember when I first went into the ministry, I was 18, and God made it possible for me to start preaching in a small country church in Hopkins County about 
15 or 20 miles from the church where my dad pastored. He was, he was at a much larger church in town. And on Sunday nights at our little country church, we sang out of one of those old hymnals that had all the old, what I would just call some of the old good songs. And on Sunday night, we sang those. And one of those songs was called, Have a Little Talk with Jesus. You, does anybody remember that song? And, uh, and, it, and I, was, I don't have the words written down. I was trying to re- refresh myself before I came out here tonight. Have a, but listen to this. Whether I misquoted or not will be all right. Have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. He will hear your every cry, and he will answer by and by. So when you feel a little prayer wheel, is it turning or churning? Turning, Jan? When you feel a little prayer wheel turning, you'll know a little fire is burning. Have a little talk with Jesus and make things right. Now, you know, sometimes that's what we need to do. We just need to have a, a little talk with Jesus, a conversation with him. I'm not, I mean, you can do this in your quiet time. Certainly, you can do it anytime you want to. But just sometime where you're, you're not necessarily praying down a list or praying for your kids or even praying for your family or you're, you're just, you've done all that, but you still have this burden. You still have this desire and it's not being fulfilled, the expectation, and you're just losing hope. What we have to do in those times is just have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him how you're feeling. Conversations require talking. But remember this, conversations also require listening. And I think most of us, when it comes to God, are better at talking than listening. I think if we ask God tonight, God would say, I'm fully aware of what their problem is. Of course, God's aware whether we tell him or not. But I think God would say, you know, I think he would probably say this of me. Let me just pick on myself. I think, I would, I think God would probably say, you know, John does a better job talking. Now, that we would all agree with that. But I'm talking about even in prayer. I think God would say, John sometimes does a better job talking than he does listening. And he does pour out his heart, and he does tell me what's going on. But he could do a little bit better about listening. Now, go back to verse 27, because uh, this is an interesting verse. After Jesus is into this conversation, he's listened to them. They've done their talking. Now they're listening while Jesus begins to talk himself. And it says, beginning at Moses, beginning at Genesis, beginning within the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How much money would you have paid to have been a part of that conversation? To have heard Jesus. And I, when I say Genesis 1-1, I believe he went back to Genesis 1-1. Because it says all the things concerning himself. When it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Remember what it says in Colossians chapter 1, that in Christ all things were created. Jesus created the world. Jesus is God. And Jesus was explaining to these disciples, you guys have always thought that it was God the Father who created the world by himself, but you need to understand, it was God the Father along with me, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We were all in there together, and we created the world. And then he talked about when Adam and Eve sinned, and, 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 and how horrible that was, and then how God had to come and sacrifice the animal, and then uh, the blood was shed, and then God clothed them with the animal skins. And no doubt, Jesus said, you remember when Adam and Eve were clothed with those animal skins to cover up their nakedness? Well, that was a picture of me. 
because I have clothed you, I will clothe you in the robes of righteousness, covering up all your sins. I'm sure Jesus talked about Noah and how Noah got in that ark before the flood came. And Jesus said to them, just like Noah got in that ark so he would be safe for the flood, I'm the ark. That ark was a picture of me. And I think he went all the way through Genesis. And he talked about when Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. And right before he killed his own son, God spoke, said, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you'll be faithful to me. You're not even withholding your son, but in the thicket there, in the brush, there's a ram. Get that ram. Offer the ram instead of your son. I can hear Jesus saying that ram was just a picture of me. And then in Exodus at the Passover, the Passover lamb, that was a picture of me. And then in Leviticus, all the sacrifices and all the offerings being all, Jesus said, that was all a picture of me. And then in Numbers, when the people were bitten by poisonous snakes and dying, and Moses prayed, and God said, Moses, build a bronze serpent, put him on a pole and lift him up. And anybody who looks at that serpent will be healed. Jesus said, that was all a picture of me. Don't you remember back in John chapter 3? It hadn't been written yet, but it had already been lived. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he went all the way through Moses and all the way through the prophets and Isaiah and all of all those passages, the suffering servant passages, and he's saying, all of that was predictive of me. It was prophecies about me, and I have fulfilled it. And so what I'm saying is they took time to listen. Now, in your outline tonight, that's all I put. We have to have an encounter with Jesus. If you're hopeless, go to Jesus. We have to have a conversation with Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Tell him how you feel. And then listen to Jesus and let him talk to you. Now, as I was thinking about that today, we all know that God desires to speak to us. Just like God desires to listen to us, God desires to speak to us. And yet I think most of us wonder, well, how do I go about hearing from God? I know how to talk to Him. And in fact, most of us would say, John, the reason we're better talkers than we are listeners is we don't know how to listen to somebody we can't hear or see. And that is true. That is a cha- it is challenging in that respect to hear from God. Now, remember this. The primary way that God speaks to us today is through His Word, the Bible. You believe that? Say amen. Amen. And so if we're going to hear from God, we're going to have to read the Bible. Now, I want to just kind of call a timeout. There's more to the sermon, but I want to call a timeout or put a parenthesis kind of where we are right now. Because as I was preparing this today, I was thinking about what is it that I could say at this part of the sermon that might help somebody when it comes to listening to God? As for, especially, God speaks from his, through His Spirit. God speaks through nature. God speaks through other people. But remember, the main way God speaks to us is through the Bible. And so I thought, you know, I, 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 I want to just share brief, not everything, but partly what I do in my own Bible reading every day. Now, I'm reluctant to do this because I don't necessarily think my quiet time is any better than yours. It may not be as good. Some of you have better quiet times and better Bible reading plans than I do. And so as one pastor said, I don't hold myself up as the paragon of excellence on this or anything else. And I really mean that. But I will say this. Every day, I try to read the Bible. Try to read something from the Bible or some, script, some verse that has something, book that has something about the Bible in it. And I want to just take just a moment and share what I did today and what I plan to do later on tonight when I get home. I can do it quickly, but I'm sharing this 
just with the hope that it might spark an idea in somebody. And you might say, well, you know, I may not do exactly what John does, but I think what I'll do is adapt that. First thing I did today, after I prayed, I'd normally pray first. I'm not sure that's the wisest thing to do, but I normally pray and then read the Bible. You could argue it both ways. I don't think God's that uptight about it either way. But when I got to my Bible reading today, first thing I did, I read a devotional book that I have that I'm reading this year, a Max Licato devotional. It's excellent. And then I took this little book that we prepared many years ago called Hiding His Word in Our Heart. And uh, this is got over 700 verses in the Bible, starting at Genesis all the way through Revelation. It's broken up in 31 days, and every day you're going to read approximately 25 verses. Now today, on the 11th of this month, I was in Isaiah, and I was reminded that when I put this book together, I made day 11 too long, because I put a lot of verses in there. In fact, I put so many that I'm going to have to read the other half of them tonight, because it just was so many of them, but most days are not that long. What I normally do in my quiet time, at least right now, and I'll mix this up, but in the season I'm in right now, for one month, I'll read this. Last month, I think I read through the Meeting God in the Psalms. The month before that, Pondering the Proverbs. And one month, I read about uh, 31 Timeless Truths. So I, I may have mixed the order up there, but that's, that's what I do. So that three or four times a year, I can read through each of those books, and they're just loaded with Bible verses. Now, when you read that many verses, obviously you can't meditate on 25 verses at, throughout the day. You can't. So you have to have this mindset. What you're doing is you're hiding these verses in your heart. That's what you're doing. Just like you plant seed in the ground, you're hiding these verses in your heart. And you're putting them in there. And when you need them, the Holy Spirit will bring it to your memory. It's one of the things Jesus said the Holy Spirit does. He brings to our memory the very Word of God. But when I do this, like today, there will be one or two verses that just jump off the page. Normally one for sure. Normally for me, two or three, and I focus in on one. And it's like that verse is my verse for the day. And this, I'll read you the verse a lot of good verses here, but I'll read you the verse or part of the verse that I have been meditating on since I read this earlier today. Isaiah chapter 38 and verse 17. Here's what it says. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. And when I read that this morning, I just stopped and thought about it. I hadn't read that verse in months. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One good thing about a book like this it forces you to read verses you wouldn't normally read if you're just reading through books in the Bible. Keeps these other verses fresh. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. And as I thought about that, I thought, God, that's true of my life. I'm like you. I have been through some bitter experiences and difficult, and we all have hard experiences in life. But when I read that verse today, it was like God said to me, John, it was for your own peace. The reason I allowed that even though it didn't make sense to you then, doesn't make sense to you now. But one of the reasons I allowed that is because through that, I was going to teach you to trust me. And by teaching you to trust me, I was going to fill your heart with peace. Now, I'm just saying to you this morning, I read that. I'm not preaching out of Isaiah tonight. I'm preaching out of Luke. But that phrase, indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. And so that's in my mind and that's in my heart. And I I, and I just thank God, I just thank you that I do have tremendous peace. And, you know, if I, we've been through experiences as a family and things in our lives just like you guys have. 
but it was for my own peace that God allowed that. So I read that. Well, then I got this Bible. This is my Bible that I read for my morning devotionals. It's Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. And I'm reading through 2 Corinthians right now. And today I'm scheduled to read chapter 3, which I did. And in the reading of of, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I came across some tremendous verses. One of them says, our sufficiency is from God. Sometimes we don't feel sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Another verse says, the letter kills. Talking about the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's in verse number 6. Now, listen to the footnote Dr. Stanley puts on, the, on that. The law revealed God's righteous requirements to us, standards we could never hope to meet on our own. The Spirit, on the other hand, gives us life because He draws us to faith in Christ's provision on the cross. Now, I'm just reading 2 Corinthians 3, and I'm reading about that. The Spirit gives life. He gives life by teaching us to trust Christ. And my mind goes back. It was for my own bitterness. It was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. And so I'm now beginning to see a theme. And then I, came in, I come to verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Now, listen to this next phrase. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's freedom. And I thought, God, that's so true. That's where freedom is. Dr. Stanley's footnote. When Jesus comes into a human heart by faith, through the Spirit, he sets that person free from the bondage of sin, the chains of death, and the futile attempt of trying to become righteous through self-effort. And I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, God... I can relate to that because all those years in my own life, I was trying to have peace by pleasing you and so on, and I could never please you in my own, and you taught me to trust you, and so I'm seeing a theme. It was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, and so that is my, that's not my sermon preparation or Bible study. It's just reading the Scriptures, and it spoke to my heart today in a very special way, and so I'm saying to you, whether you do this or whether you do something or do something else, have you some plan to read the Bible? I'm convinced of this. There's no such thing as a bad plan. Most of the time, not every night, but like tonight when I go home before I go to bed, most likely I will read Psalm 59 because last night I read Psalm 58, and I'm reading through the Psalms at night at my own pace. I'm reading out of a different Bible at night. I don't want study notes. I just want to read a plain Bible. And then I'll probably read tonight the second half of Exodus chapter 8 because last night before I went to bed, I read the first half of Exodus 8, and so I'll finish that tonight. Just putting it in my mind, and I may not even do that tonight. If I get home, if I'm too tired, I may pass, but most likely I will read that. And so I'm saying in the reading of God's Word, that's when we hear from God. The reason I didn't read the whole chapter last night in Exodus 8, I read about the second plague in Egypt, the frogs. Hear frogs all over the land of Egypt. You know the story. And Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, Moses, please pray to God. Now, Pharaoh didn't know God, but he knew Moses knew God. And he said, Pharaoh, please, he said, Moses, please pray to God that these frogs will be taken away from our land. They were in the beds, in the kitchens, in the ovens. It was horrible. And Moses said, okay, Pharaoh, I'll pray to God that these frogs will be taken away. Answer this question. When would you like the frogs to be gone? Now, if I would have been Pharaoh, I would have said five minutes ago, Right? Right now, tonight, Pharaoh said to Moses, tomorrow, tomorrow. One, one pastor who I love, he's in heaven now, he has a sermon called One More Night with the Frogs. 
And I thought about that sermon last night. That's why I quit reading. I thought, you know, sometimes in our lives, we have something in our lives that doesn't belong in our lives, a sin, an attitude, a habit, something, a hobby. And we know God wants to take it out. And yet, instead of saying, God, take it out tomorrow or take it out tonight, our attitude many times is, God, one day, straighten me out on this. God says, I don't want to straighten you out one day. I'll set you free from that bondage tonight. And so, what do we do in order to get our hope restored? We have an encounter with Jesus. We have a conversation with Jesus. And then let me add one more point to what I've said tonight. It is through our faith in Jesus. It's all about faith. Your life with God. If you don't hear anything else tonight that I'm saying, do hear this. Your relationship with God is all about faith. It is all about your trusting in Him, trusting in His promises. I read a verse the other night, two nights ago before I went to bed, or three nights ago, in Psalm 138, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Say that with me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. And I went to bed that night thinking about that. I thought, God, anything and everything that concerns me, first of all, if it concerns me, it concerns you. And if it's imperfect, you will perfect it. And so we have to put our faith in his promises. We have to put our faith in his person, in the person of Jesus Christ. You have to trust Jesus. You have to get your faith out of you and get your faith into him. And you have to put your faith not only in the person of Jesus Christ, but you have to put your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if we can have our faith there in his promises and in his purposes and in his blood, then we'll be doing well. Do you remember last week I put the verse on the screen? I won't put it up there tonight, but I'll read it to you what the psalmist said in Psalm 42. In fact, in Psalms 42 and 43, he asked the same question three times. The psalmist had lost hope, and he didn't even know why he was hopeless. But he said this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him the help of his, for the help of his countenance. Tonight, if you're hopeless, the solution to that is to put your hope in God. In his promises, in his person, in the person of Jesus Christ, and in his blood, that for you, he will take care of whatever it is that you're facing. You know, I think about these two disciples. Had they done that? Had, they knew that Jesus had said, in three days I'll rise from the dead. Had they put their faith and kept their faith in Jesus' promises, in the person of Jesus, and in the blood of Jesus, they never would have lost hope. They never would have become one big question mark. They never would have been heading back to Emmaus. They would have gone to those disciples in that upper room, and they would have said, listen, we haven't seen Jesus either, but he said he would come back to life, and we put our faith in his promise, and we trust him to do that. They could have encouraged those other disciples that night had they not lost hope, but their hopelessness sent them away from Jerusalem, away from Jesus, away from the disciples, it turned their life into one big question mark, and Jesus came along and straightened them out and made it an exclamation point. Now, as we conclude tonight, as I'm thinking about hopelessness and how all these young people are facing hopelessness, do you know who is behind all hopelessness? The devil. Because you know what the devil says? 
even to those of us who are saved and know better. And he doesn't say it directly, but he puts the little thought in our mind and gets us to going down a bad rabbit trail mentally. The devil wants to come along and convince us that in our situation, the promises don't apply, that in our particular case, we need more than Jesus, and that because of our particular sin, it's going to take more than the blood of Jesus. We better add something to that if we're going to be set free. And what the devil does, he keeps us in bondage. I'll say this about the devil. It is his desire to do everything he can to shut us down. It is God's desire to do everything we need to set us free. Many of us back in the 80s and 90s, and I'm certainly in this group, long before we ever moved to the Houston area, we, I used to love to hear John Osteen preach at Lakewood Church. He was a fireball preacher. And when I was a student at seminary, on Sunday nights, he came on in Fort Worth about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and most every Sunday night, I would watch John Osteen preach. He told a story one night about how when he was in his early 40s, happily married, kids, church doing well, all was going pretty well for Pastor Osteen. He said that one night he had a dream, and in that dream, he was in a room. It was a square about 30 feet wide in every direction, just a room, and in that room was Satan, and in that room was another man, and in that room was himself. And he was watching Satan, and he was watching this other man, and he was trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Am I in a dream? Is this really happening? Where am I? What is this? Well, there was only one door out of that room, and he could tell that this man wanted to go out that door. But standing in front of that door was Satan, and Satan had the meanest look on his face that you could imagine. And Satan was intimidating that man. And Satan was saying to that man, you can't come out of this door. You can't come out of this room through this door because I'm standing guard over this door and I'm stronger than you. The man was petrified. And the man was paralyzed. And he refused to make any move towards that door. See, that door for that man represented freedom, out of bondage, away from the enemy. But he was afraid to go through that door because the devil was there. Well, after some time in this dream, Pastor Osteen said, you know, I, I was in the room too, and, and I kind of got wanting out of this room. But I was having the same problem this man was having. I saw the same devil, and that devil was giving me the same look that he was giving that other man. And I thought, there's no way that I can go through that door. There's no way that I can get out of this room because the devil is stronger than I am. And he said as he was having this conversation with himself, the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, remember, John, Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. The name of Jesus is stronger than the name of Satan. What I want you to do is walk towards that door, look Satan in the eye, and say to the devil, in the name of Jesus, I'm walking out this door, and I'm walking out of this room into the freedom that God has for me. And so he did. He got up from where he was in that room. He's walking towards that door. He got to the devil. He looked the devil in the face, and he said that, in the name of Jesus, I'm walking out of this room. And he woke up, and he thought, that's the weirdest dream I've ever had in all my life. What was the purpose of that? Weeks went by, months went by, and he began to fall, Pastor Osteen, into a depression. 
He became overwhelmed with things that were happening at the church, and he began to lose his passion, and he began to lose his fire for God, and he just began to be fearful. He began to imagine that some terrible disease had overcome his body, and he was going to die prematurely, and there was nothing he could do about it. And he began to be afraid that even if he went out to drive his car to go to places, that something bad would happen. And though, so for several months, he just kind of shut himself down and didn't go very many places. He was only preaching when he had to preach. He wasn't preaching in extra places. As he went through this experience for several months, God brought that dream back to him. And God said to him, John, that dream that you had that night was given to me by you. Because before you even got in this condition where you're overwhelmed and you're hopeless and you're depressed and you feel like you're stuck and you can't move forward, I gave you that dream so that you could see that in the name of Jesus, you could walk out that door and you could walk through that room. Well, about this time, he got an invitation to preach for some other pastor. He felt like he should accept it, but it required that he get on an airplane and fly a long way from Houston. He was scared to fly because fear had overtaken his life. But he said, I've got to do this. And so he went to the airport and he said, as you would imagine, he said, on the one time when I really needed a big 747 plane, I got out there. It was a, it was a propeller, two, a twin, you know, like two propeller plane. And he said, man, this is going to be awful. But, and then he said, he had this thought, don't get on that plane. Something bad is going to happen if you get on that plane. But he remembered that dream in the name of Jesus. I can walk out this door, and I can walk out of this room, and I can be free. He got on the plane. He said he was shaking in his seat. He said he was so scared that plane wasn't going to get off the runway. When that pilot lifted that nose up, Pastor Osteen said, I, lifted, I leaned back in my seat to help that plane get up off the ground. He said when he started to turn left, I leaned in my seat left. When we go right, I leaned. He said that plane was so small, I thought I was having to help that pilot fly that plane. He said, we got to where we were going. We landed safely. I preached, and I just kept saying on that whole, every time the devil would put something in my mind and make me depressed and scared and even hopeless, in the name of Jesus, I'm walking out of this bondage. And he said, as he kept doing that, God set him free. When I heard that story, I thought to myself, all of us can relate to that on one level or another because all of us have felt like we're stuck we're hopeless, and we can't move forward. And that's why I said a moment ago, Satan's goal in your life is to shut you down. Jesus' goal in your life is to set you free. And if you will move forward by faith, faith in the promises of God, faith in the person of Jesus Christ, and faith in his shed blood, and you'll just say to the devil, to yourself, or to anybody else who may be intimidating you, in the name of Jesus, I'm moving forward by faith. You'll walk out of that door. You'll walk out of that room. And you'll begin to experience what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 3, where the Spirit of the Lord is. There's liberty and there's freedom. Amen?